If you just got here, we are in Jude, verses 8 through 10. I'd love to just dig into our time by, by beginning with a brief recap of, of where we have come from or where we have been in light of Jude. Um, the, the Apostle Jude is writing to the early church about his concern of the false followers that are within the church. Last week, and even in the week before that, Nathaniel, who is our mission, uh, missional communities director, and then Pastor Jeff from Logos Harlingen did a phenomenal job walking you through uh, the purpose as to why Jude is writing to this church and then some of the specific examples that Jude is beginning to illustrate or provide to us uh, regarding the false followers within the church. Now within that brief, brief, brief recap, here's what I want you to remember. Jude is writing to the church because of people who proclaim the name of Christ and they are false teachers or false followers, and they are not from the outside of the church. When we look at other epistles, like the epistles of Peter or even the apostle Paul, oftentimes they are writing to warn the church of what is coming. They are writing to warn the church of what is going on within the culture that the church finds herself in. What separates Jude from them is that he is writing in the present tense saying that there are false teachers, there are false followers of Christ in the church right now. Peter and Paul warn you of their coming. I am telling you that they are here and among you. Jude begins by reminding the church of her identity in Christ and begins to implore her to contend for their faith. I think Pastor Jeff said this really well last week that contending means to go or to be on the offense when it comes to rebuke and correction. That our goal isn't to be offensive in our approach, but it is to take the position of offense in order to call out what needs to be called out. This is necessary for our day because the church has often tried to fit in with the culture or to be relevant, and in doing so, we neglect God's call to holiness and that through the redeeming work of Christ, we have been bought with a price. Everyone wants to be spiritual, but no one wants to be godly. There's this bodybuilder, he's retired now. He had a similar saying, his name is Ronnie Coleman. He's an eight-time Mr. Olympia, lives in Arlington, Texas. And he says, everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to lift heavyweight. And what he's getting at is that everybody wants the glamor of what it means to be or look like a bodybuilder or a professional athlete, but nobody wants to do the work that leads you toward it. In the same way, the church, everyone wants to be spiritual, but no one wants to be godly. The work and joy of godliness by the church is often neglected and forsaken because theology is time-consuming, because giving means sacrifice or not buying something else that you wanted on Amazon. 
The work of godliness is often neglected and forsaken because setting our minds on the things of God takes a lot of time and energy, not to mention the things, uh, not to mention requirements or things that, that require my time or things that require me to think. I just don't want to do that. Our heart sins reveal what we believe about God's authority over our lives and what we think about sin. That is, whether we actually believe it's bad, whether it's bad or not, or whether or not it actually hurts and affects those around us. We have embraced our own authority while claiming to be followers of Christ, and while our lifestyle neglects the residing, uh, the, the residence of the Holy Spirit in us, we are content to say things like, God knows my heart. Yet the truth is, the word of God is revealing. It reveals who we are apart from Christ, and it reveals our need for Christ. And that's our main idea for our time this morning. The authority of God through Scripture reveals our depravity apart from a Savior and our dependence upon the grace of a Savior. I'll say it one more time. I think it's up on the screen. The authority of God through Scripture reveals our depravity apart from a Savior and our dependence upon the grace of a Savior. So let me read verses 8 through 10, and then I'll pray, and we'll dig into this further. Here's what Jude writes. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray. Lord, you are sovereign and we are not. You are Lord, we are not. You are creator and we are created. God, may you humble us this morning in light of everything happening within our country and community. Would you humble us so that we would receive the truth of your word so that we would be more like Jesus today? God, would you humble us so that we would be confronted with the depth of our sin, so that we would be grieved by our sin, and so that in our grief, we would walk toward repentance. Lord, this morning, may you be glorified in our time spent in your word. May we be edified, equipped, and exhorted all to the glory of your great name. Amen. I want to focus, uh, in the beginning of this, I want to focus on verses 8 and 10. In these verses, we are given a specific look at the character and conduct of false teachers or false followers that are in the church that Jude is talking about. 
In fact, we could summarize it this way, that their character and conduct lead us to see that they have become spiritually drunk, that they have embraced their own authority. And we know this because Jude writes about this in verse 8 saying, yet in like manner, in other words, in light of what I just told you in verses five through seven, these people, those that are in the church and are false followers of Christ who are false teachers, these people, I already lost my place, these people also relying on their own dreams. I wanna park there for just a minute. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we know that dreams are a form of revelation from God to man. So there's nothing necessarily new about that. But in addition to that, throughout Scripture, we are told to test spirits or prophecies that come our way. The Apostle John tells the church, beloved, be sure to test every spirit to make sure that it is from the Lord. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says, do not despise prophecies. In fact, test them according to the teaching of Scripture. False teachers or false followers of Christ do not test these dreams or these forms of revelation. Rather, they embrace them and rely on their own interpretation of them, neglecting the word of God. In other words, they embrace their own authority. These false teachers have become incredibly spiritually drunk that their judgment has become clouded and they, they are ultimately led by their desires. Now I want you to think about this. This is people inside of the church. Oftentimes we can read these epistles and forget that when we become convicted, it's not because we left the oven on, it's because the Holy Spirit is actually convicting you of your sin regarding what God has been convicting the church through in these letters. These are people from within the church and these are people that are attempting to persuade other believers from joining them or into joining them with their intoxication. This is a problem within our church. This is a problem within the American church because many do the same thing. It may be articulated differently. It may be crafted a little bit more intelligently. It may even be ignorantly assumed, but the church today often embraces self-authority rather than being sober-minded, rather than being submitted to the authority and word of God, the church is often drunk and disorderly. And in this section of scripture, uh, Jude provides us with three examples of these false teachers and their conduct, or of the conduct of these false teachers or these false followers. So let's look at what they, what they are. Jude continues. They rely on their own dreams. They, we can call this triples. When you read through Jude, he often provides like uh, examples in threes. All right, so here they are. 
Relying on their own dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Let's talk about each one of these. And this, I would add, bleeds into verse 10. But beginning with defile the flesh, what, is, what does that mean? Jude is referring specifically to sexual immorality. Led by impulse, these individuals indulge in sexual immorality, which includes adultery, fornication, sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, and homosexuality. You may not necessarily consider yourself a false teacher, but that does not mean you are not spiritually intoxicated. And this may be some of you who pervert the truth about God and what he has done for you in Christ that you indulge in your sexual sin because you're lonely, because it feels good, because you want to play house, because at some point you're going to get married anyway. The reality is you are looking to God to justify your sin, your foolishness, and your immaturity, and he will not. The second example of conduct is that these individuals reject the authority of God. Because they pervert the truth about God, they embrace their own self-authority. We do the same thing. We negate the authority of God through his word and pervert how we ought to live, saying things like, this is my truth, and God told me, and God knows my heart, rather than actually being submitted to what God has revealed to us by his word. You distort the truth about God and his word because you came across something you simply didn't like. And rather than wrestling with it and rather than going to your brothers and sisters for uh, godly wisdom and advice, you embrace your own truth, picking and choosing scripture. It's not that you reject Jesus, but it is that you deny his work in your daily life. In doing this, it is not only your preaching that teaches that you have a lack of love for Jesus when you pick and choose scripture, when you adopt what you like versus what you don't like, what you are doing is adopting a completely different view of the scriptures that Jesus himself had. That's what it means when we reject authority. Again, everybody wants to be spiritual nobody wants to be godly. And the third example of conduct is blasphemy. Or they blaspheme. Here's what he means. These individuals slander what is good and godly because they believe they are at a higher spiritual capacity. They believe that they are better. They believe that they are more holy. They believe that they are more spiritually intelligent. There are some of you who slander against one another with a smile on your face and in the context of prayer and community group in the privacy of your own heart and you invite others into your slander using gospel-centered language so that you would appear more humble, more noble, more charitable, and ultimately right. 
Like these false followers, you reject the authority of God because you don't want advice from others and you don't want accountability from brothers and sisters. In recent weeks, what have we seen even on social media? What is it that we have even as the church reflected on social media? One of the things that I've seen in light of of this presidential election has been Christians slandering against one another. And now, one of the most common phrases I have seen posted online is that in, in this time where our country is so divided, there must be a united church. And while I could not agree more, why wasn't this the cry of the church months ago? Why was not this the cry of the church? It's because that we too are led by our impulses and indulgences of our hearts to embrace our own authority, to justify, to legitimize, and accept sin, and that our Savior isn't Lord, but a genie. Like the false followers that we're seeing in Jude, we reject the authority of God We minimize our sin and we forget that we have been bought with a price. Before moving forward into into verse nine, before moving forward, Christian, you need to remember that you have been bought with a price. Redemption isn't a second chance, but it is the grace of a new heart and a new nature. Grace isn't a helping hand. Grace isn't good advice. Grace is transformation of a dead heart. Grace is the transformation of a new nature. Grace is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Oftentimes we think about redemption as just a single, uh, excuse me, as just a second chance. We've talked at great length about what redemption really is. The context of redemption is that we at one point were slaves to our sin, that we were in bondage to our unrighteousness, and the Lord Jesus has purchased us with his blood out of that slavery to our bondage, to our unrighteousness, to our sins so that we would never return. It is not merely a do-over. It is a new life. You have been set free from your bondage to sin and slavery to your sin. When we embrace self-authority, and when we reject the seriousness of sin, the word of God reveals our depravity apart from a savior. Depravity demands dependence. So how is this accomplished? I want us to look at verse nine. Here's Here's what Jude writes. Actually, I gotta drink more coffee. Verse nine, but when the archangel Michael contending, I love that word, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you, okay? 
In this verse, Jude references Michael, the archangel, Moses, and Satan from a book that is outside the canon of Scripture. It is called uh, the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. Not much, if any of it, has actually been preserved in our day. But one thing that you need to know and that you need to notice is that throughout Jude, he is going to regularly uh, quote from other texts outside of scripture. And that's not necessarily something new or special. Paul does the same thing uh, when he finds himself in Athens. He's quoting philosophers and he's quoting poets. And so Jude is doing the same thing in an effort to prove his point. Additionally, one of the reasons I think that Jude uh, references uh, books or literature, uh, specifically Jewish literature that's outside the canon of scripture, is because the church he is writing to, I think he is assuming that they would be familiar with these texts, which is why he doesn't necessarily elaborate on why he's referencing these other texts. Based upon the timeline of when Jude was writing to this church, these texts would have been circulated around that time. And so Jude is referencing them just like I reference valleyisms. They are familiar to the church. They are familiar to these people. And more than likely, they have actually read some of these texts. So with that being said, just because Jude is referencing something outside of the canon of Scripture doesn't mean it's untrue. It may not be inspired, but it doesn't mean it's not true. In this verse, here's what I want to get down to. In this verse, Moses has died. Uh, The Bible does record the death of Moses in Deuteronomy 34. However, this exchange is not recorded in the pages of Scripture. And so at this point in what Jude is referring to from the assumption of Moses, Moses has died and Satan is disputing with Michael. Many think that or the reason he is disputing with Michael is because Satan wants Moses for himself because Satan uh, is saying, hey, uh, Moses was a murderer, therefore I'm the one who should get him and torment him, right? He is the one, like, give him over to me, go ahead and judge him and then give him over to me. In short, Michael rebukes Satan, okay? Now, Let's go ahead and indulge this reference for just a minute. I want you to notice two things about this verse regarding what Michael does and doesn't do. So, Michael is contending with Satan regarding the body of Moses. Moses is telling him, I want him. Michael rebukes him. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. Michael doesn't assume his own authority. In other words, he doesn't act as if he is God. He doesn't act as if he is God. The second thing is that Michael is actually, is is very aware of where his actual power comes from, and that is in the authority of God. So he rebukes Satan in God's name. Michael quotes Zechariah 3 when he says, the Lord rebuke you. 
This is important because last week we were talking about, or Jeff was talking about the, the angels that gave up their position to engage sinful acts with humans, right? In this little verse, Jude is making a contrast between Michael who actually submits to the authority of God compared to the angels from last week who engaged in sinful behavior. Question being, why does this matter? Why is this important? We got some I guess some good nuggets of wisdom in this. Why is this important? Well, it's important because Michael's response and position is in direct contrast to those who are false teachers and false followers in the church. His response is in direct contrast to the people Jude is addressing, or at least talking about. Michael's contrast, his position and his response is actually our application. And it's a reminder of what Jesus has done. So let's look at each one of these one at a time. First thing I want you to notice in terms of Michael's response is God's economy. Michael knows exactly where he stands in God's economy. He is not trying to be God. He is not trying to overrule God. He's not trying to act as if he is God. In fact, Michael is submitted to the authority of God. Michael knows that he is a creature, not creator, that he is servant and not Lord. As powerful as Michael is, he is not his own authority. He knows his place false teachers and false followers do not. We see this even in the life of Jesus. Jesus, upon entering into human history over and over and over again, says that he has come to do the will of him who sent him, and that is the Father. And Jesus is submitted to his authority. One of the ways in which we go wrong when we reject the authority of God, when we indulge in our impulses, is because we simply don't like where God has us. And so we forsake, neglect, and forfeit our sanctification to go do what we want. In this example, Michael knows exactly where God has him, and he knows exactly what to do. The second example is God's power. Michael knows that he is not the power, but he knows who the source of the power is, and that is the Lord. Michael contends with Satan by quoting scripture to rebuke Satan. Now that's important because he uses that word contending. How does Michael contend with Satan? He contends with scripture. He doesn't give him his opinion. He doesn't write them off on Facebook, right? He's not like a, like a ghost writer on Facebook. You come up with your own accounts and it's not really you, right? He doesn't write a blog about him. He's not general about him on Twitter. He doesn't bring him up uh, ambiguously in a prayer request. He quotes scripture and rebukes him. When approached or challenged by Satan, Michael doesn't indulge or entertain the conversation, but uses the word of God to reject him. Jesus combats or contends with Satan in the exact same way in Matthew 4. Jesus is fasting. Luke records that he is tired and hungry. 
And at his weakest, at his physical weakness, Satan appears to tempt Jesus. And what does Jesus use to contend with Satan? Scripture. The first thing that Satan does, particularly in the garden, and then again uh, when, when with Jesus in Matthew 4, is that he brings up a question about our identity. What was the first thing he told Eve? Did God really say? He tries or attempts to, to, to tempt Jesus in the same way. If you are the son of man, And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus was victorious. Jesus was ready to, go to wor- ready to go to war because he knew the word of God. Many of us indulge in our sin simply because we're not ready to go to war because we don't know the word. In this example of Michael, cool, fine. It's a reference to another uh, literature resource. What's his, what's his source? It's the word of God. What's the sword that Jesus uses against Satan? It's the word of God. Part of the reason we as the church, let's just be straight up, right? Like part of the reason we just we don't contend is because we're not ready to go to war because we don't know the word. Knowing the word is for the spiritual elite. No, it's for you. Jesus says it this way. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The branch is connected to the vine. Jesus is the source of power. He's the powerhouse. Number three, new speech. In light of what Michael does, I also want us to look one more time at verse 10. He says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These two are going to pertain, these last two, speech and a renewed mind, are pertaining to a little bit about verse 9, but mostly verse 10. New speech. Christian, guard what you say. You see, false teachers speak about what they don't understand, and they speak, they speak arrogantly and ignorantly. If and when you rebuke or correct another, make sure that your speech is gracious. Make sure that your speech is loving. But listen to me. Do not sacrifice truth. Do not sacrifice the truth about what God has said. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the spiritual or the religious elite of the day. The ones who know scripture, he rebukes them. He rebukes them with the truth about God's word. Sometimes he does it in conversation. Sometimes he does it in a very firm word. But you notice that he never sacrifices truth. When we embrace self-authority because of something we don't like or because we want to indulge in our own sin, and sin really isn't that bad, when we embrace our self-authority, 
we are unarmed. We sacrifice the truth about God so that we would continue to indulge in whatever it is that we'd like. Number four, having a renewed mind. False teachers do not think biblically. They think naturally. In other words, they are inclined to their own impulses. The example of Michael and certainly the person of Jesus have their minds set on the things of God. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christian, are your thoughts on the mind of God, on the things of God, I should say? Are your thoughts on the things of God? Our depravity requires grace. And the grace of God is actually freely offered to you in Christ. Here's the beauty of the gospel. God does not leave you where you are, but actually meets you where you are with his grace. And as I mentioned earlier, his grace is not good advice and it's not a helping hand, but, the tra but transformation and a new life. Therefore, church, let us run away from the works of the flesh and let us run toward the fruit of the Spirit. When we depend upon the Lord and are submitted to his word, we are better able and equipped to respond appropriately. We boast in him and him crucified and not in ourselves. And so as we close and wrap this up, Christian, while you may not call yourself a false teacher, your character or your conduct preaches a different sermon. In the coming weeks, I want you to notice two things. One is a reminder, one I may have not said it before. If you're studying Jude on your own time, verses five through 16, is the bulk of the letter. And Jude begins to, especially in verse eight, begins to get more specific about unrepentant sinners or people who are in the church and think they know Jesus, but actually don't. He spends more time talking about unrepentant sinners and God's judgment on them than he actually spends talking about the grace of God for sinners. That tells you how serious Jude is about the church addressing her sin. And when we embrace the time, or when we embrace our time to fit in with the culture, to neglect truth, to be relevant, we forfeit the truth of God. When we lack accountability, that means we lack a confession of sin. When you minimize your sin, that should tell you that you actually don't think sin is that big of a deal. When you rationalize your sin, you forget that you have been bought with a price. 
When you partially confess your sin, you're saying you don't trust God completely. When you confess your sin fully, but don't repent, you don't preach a sermon about transformation. You're saying that God is not really God. When we embrace our own authority, like these individuals Jude is talking about, we're going to reject the church and one another. Just look online. It'll show you. And let me just tell you right now, right? There is no ministry here at Storehouse called Jerks for Jesus. Okay? There is no ministry called Jerks for Jesus. Okay? So stop being one. Repent of your sin. Repent of your arrogance. Repent of your pride. Remember, Jude is talking to people inside the church. This might be you. Repent of your arrogance, of your pride, of your disbelief. Experience the grace of God for you right now so that you would walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Remember uh, the key about redemption. Yes, you have been bought with a price. That means that you have been purchased out of your slavery to your sin so that you would never return. And the currency that was used was the blood of the Lord Jesus for you. And if you're not a Christian, my hope and prayer is that you would come to know Jesus today, that you would surrender your life to him and turn toward him in repentance and faith. I promise he is ready to pardon all who turn to him. The word of God reveals our depravity apart from a savior, but it also reveals our dependence upon the grace of of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are prone to wander. We confess that we are prone to be inclined by the desires of our flesh. Lord, we confess that we are prone to indulge in the impulses of our hearts. And so, Lord, we come before you and ask, would you forgive us of our sin? The sin that we have committed against you, the sin that we commit against one another. 